0: Section 2. Mindset matters. Chapter 4. Self-care. Without you, there is no PhD. Trigger warnings. Eating disorders. Addiction. I strongly considered whether or not I wanted to include this chapter at all. So often in my experience, well-being advice is simply built around self-care and nothing more for PhD students, focusing solely on what individuals can do better how to maintain a positive mindset or manage stress through a myriad of potential issues. This was in itself a major source of frustration during my own PhD as there is so much more to the PhD experience and what might impact mental health than if we eat right or not. However, I have concluded over time that self-care has huge value as a tool to make the PhD experience more manageable and absolutely has a place in this book. I see investment in self-care as the shoring up of our foundations so that we increase our chance of success. When I first heard the phrase self-care, I remember thinking I wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. I was there to do a PhD, not sing Kumbaya in a group or meditate. I didn't have time for that. There is research to be done and I was a scientist with no tolerance for rubbish. If this is you right now, I want to spend some time convincing you that investing in yourself is the biggest and most important thing you can do for yourself and your PhD research. Simply put, I was wrong. If you've already come to this realisation and you're already on your self-care journey, I hope you can find yourself mirrored in this chapter and use it to feel good about putting yourself first. As a side note, whilst meditation really doesn't work for me, I find my brain is too loud for me to relax into it, this doesn't mean it's not a valuable and important tool for some to improve well-being. Different people find comfort in different self-care practices. Self-care, as defined by the World Health Organization, is the ability of individuals, families and communities to promote health, prevent disease, maintain health and to cope with illness and disability with or without the support of a healthcare provider. In other words, by engaging in self-care, we are committing to look after ourselves, both mentally and physically. This can reduce stress, help improve our resilience, and help us manage pre existing mental illnesses. Self care helps us improve our capacity to cope with whatever comes our way. So, why should we care about self care as PhD researchers? For me, it is simple. In the pursuit of academic excellence, we must look after our own well being. To neglect ourselves is not to bring our A-game, meaning we have no energy left to give to the research that we love. To be the best researchers we can be, we must put ourselves first, as without us, there would be no research. In this sense, looking after our mental health aligns well with the main aims and objectives of the academy, as it enables us to publish high-impact papers, obtain intellectual property, get research featured positively in the news, etc., However, the link between well-being and output is not always respected. Often the culture of overwork, commonly associated with academia, means that the preference from our institutions is that we work like machines, powering on through irrespective of how we feel, never stopping to question if we are physically or mentally well enough to be doing our research. This must change, and it is, slowly. The first step in understanding self-care as a PhD student is that we are not robots. We cannot simply ignore our health. Self-care is essential to long-term, sustainable progress during our PhD. Pushing too hard may mean reaching burnout, which, as PhD researchers, can make us unwell, having a knock-on impact on our PhD studies. According to the International Classification of Diseases, burnout is an occupational phenomenon and can be defined as A syndrome conceptualised as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed, characterised by three factors. Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job, or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job, and reduced professional efficacy. If possible, clearly this is something that is best avoided. Self-care is one of the ways to do this. One of the first things to know about self-care is that it has a huge learning journey. It may also evolve over time. One thing that works for you at one point in your life might not work for you in another. For example, many people use physical exercise to release endorphins and relieve stress. But what would happen if you were to break your leg suddenly? Your self-care would have to adapt accordingly. It is therefore important to recognise that self-care needs to be adaptable and is different person to person, depending on needs and circumstance. It is therefore sensible to consider what your self-care routine looks like and diversify if needed. Note, there is a darker side of self-care. When workloads are higher than they should be, or pressures too much, there is often a push towards individualism when it comes to mental health, that we must be more resilient, lean more heavily on self-care, and power on through. This is not okay. There is only so much anyone should have to deal with at any given time. Thus, self-care is a valuable tool, but every tool has its limit. Setting the foundations. In all likelihood, you've probably heard advice on eating well, doing physical exercise and getting enough sleep a hundred times before. It is certainly not my intention to only talk about what you can do to maintain good mental health throughout this book. In my opinion... This information is routinely reiterated to us by university well-being programs in part because it is a relatively simple way to provide general well-being advice more on this in the next chapter but also put the fault on us if we do not stay well and whilst i fundamentally disagree with this approach i believe systemic issues in the academy must be addressed it is essential that we realize that mastering these foundations of well-being can really help with managing our mental health For this reason, I will spend some time discussing why they're important and how you might make these work for you as a busy PhD student. I want to recognise that it is easy for me to dish out this advice, but there may be a range of factors outside of your control that affect your self-care. For this section, focus is placed on what you can control. You may not be able to do everything, that is more than okay. If self-care itself ultimately is causing you more distress, it may be time to step away from it. Establishing a good sleep schedule. Several studies have shown that doctoral students have a reduced night's sleep on average compared to the recommended seven to nine hours sleep, averaging around 6.4 hours sleep. At first glance, looking at these numbers, you may think the difference between seven and 6.4 hours of sleep is negligible, but even slightly less sleep than we need can impact our behaviour and our mental health. Lack of sleep, struggling with insomnia, has also been linked with increased likelihood of anxiety, stress and depression. Further, lack of sleep may directly impact your PhD work. You may feel more fatigued during your workday, be irritable, lose interest in activities that usually bring you joy, and lack of concentration may lead to reduced work quality. Problem solving and decision making has also been found to be affected, even after just one night of lost sleep. Thus, it is important to consider whether an all-nighter is truly worth it for your overall productivity. Long-term, investment in sleep is key. So, here is a task for you to try. Ask yourself, are you actually getting enough sleep? If you do not know the answer to this question, I task you with monitoring your sleep for a week. You can use fancy gadgets such as sleep monitoring watches, But in reality, you can make an approximation through writing down the time you switch off your bedroom light to sleep, noting down if you wake up in the night and what time you wake up. If by the end of the week you find that you're not getting the required seven to nine hours of sleep, it may be time to rethink your sleep schedule. This is where establishing good sleep hygiene comes in. Sleep hygiene is a series of active steps that you can take to improve the quality and quantity of your sleep. It requires effort to implement some of these changes to start with, but with time they're likely to become part of your everyday routine. Some examples of changes you could make include Regulating caffeine intake Caffeine is a stimulant and can remain in the body for quite some time. A single dose of caffeine has a half-life of three to seven hours. It may not be realistic or desirable to cut out caffeine entirely, but consider decaffeinated options in the afternoon. Reducing screen time before bed. Light from our devices, such as phones, TVs and laptops, can make it more difficult to sleep, as it can affect our circadian rhythm and impact melatonin production that helps us sleep. Consider not using artificially lit devices an hour before you intend to sleep. I am particularly bad for not doing this, as those of you that follow me on Twitter will know. I wanted to comment on this to show that whilst I'm giving this advice, implementing it is hard. I'm certainly not perfect, even though I know what would be best for me. One effective way of avoiding using your phone is charging it at a plug socket across the other side of your room. Getting exposure to natural light. Natural light helps calibrate our circadian rhythm, helping our body determine the time of day it is and when to sleep. If natural light is not possible, for example due to the latitude of where you live, light exposure light therapy during the day may help try to avoid working from your bed. Keeping your bed as a dedicated sleeping space and not using it to work can help you mentally switch off at night by associating the space with sleeping. This is not always possible. You may live in a studio apartment, for example, or suffer from chronic illness, which means working from bed is easier for you. Or, like me, some days you might be struggling with your mental health, and try as you might, you find it difficult, if not impossible, to get out of bed. On these days, I now tend to work from my bed, snuggled up in my duvet. It makes me feel much better, and it's a worthwhile trade-off for me when it comes to sleep hygiene versus managing my depression for the day. Aim to go to bed at the same time each night. Establishing a routine and set time that you go to bed can help prepare your body for a good night's sleep. This is not always possible due to deadlines or simply wanting to have a night out with friends, but aiming to be consistent for the majority of the week will help. Establish a relax routine. Commit to doing relaxing activities before bed. This could be having a cup of herbal tea, reading a book, crafting, taking a bath, meditating or anything else that helps you unwind that you have access to. Write down your worries. Sometimes we can struggle to turn our thoughts and anxieties off when trying to sleep. A tip is to have a notebook by your bed that you can write these concerns into to help put them aside until morning. If you try these sleep hygiene activities and you're still struggling with sleep, I advise you go speak to a medical professional if you have access. They can help you figure out why your sleep is being impacted and help you work towards a healthier sleep cycle. Know that you will not always get your sleep right, but you can reset and start working towards better sleep hygiene at any time. Eat nutritious food. You're all adults, so I'm not going to spend long on telling you the importance of eating nutritious food. You'll likely have heard it before. I'm also not going to presume to tell you what eating well looks like for you. I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm not qualified to give you specific advice on what you should or shouldn't be eating. Eating well can, however, make a difference during your PhD. Eating regularly can enable you to maintain focus, as can drinking adequate amounts of water, if you tend to forget to drink during the day, setting a reminder on your phone to drink or getting a drinking bottle with demarcated lines on it may help. Keeping snacks on hand to help fuel you when you have an energy low may also be useful. Tip. If you routinely forget to eat or skip meals, making eating a social event, for example sharing cooking meals with friends or flatmates across the week, can keep you accountable. Financial difficulties can also make eating well tough such as being able to afford fresh ingredients and expensive proteins like meat and fish. Bulk buying ingredients like pasta and rice and getting portions through a largely vegetarian diet for a while can help cost save, though having the money to bulk buy can be a privilege in itself. Tip, please see additional resources link at the back of the book for more support. When we are under stress, eating can become a way for us to try to maintain control. This can manifest as eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. Lips et al., 2017, studied both undergraduate and graduate populations, finding 11% of students had an elevated eating disorder risk and 40.2% of students had engaged in binge eating behaviours in the last month. It was also found that individuals that identified as LGBTQ+, were more likely to have an eating disorder. Eating disorders are challenging to recover from and can be deadly if left unchecked. If you are struggling at the moment, first, well done for acknowledging there might be a problem. This is the first step to recovery. Second, know there is help available to you, including speaking to a medical professional. You are not alone. There has also been some studies linking low vitamin D from sunlight to mental illnesses, including depression. Whilst there are some dietary sources of vitamin D, most vitamin D is made from getting sunlight on our skin when outdoors. As PhD students, taking less vacation and staying inside to study, the lifestyle often means working indoors, in offices and or labs, for extended periods. Thus, taking the time to ensure that you are getting the right nutrition is important, and it may be a good idea to consider taking vitamin supplements In the UK, governmental advice is to take a vitamin D supplement in autumn and winter. Of course, this advice may be different depending on your country of study. Physical exercise. There is often inherent ableism that exists within any wellbeing advice that suggests you to just get out and exercise more. From experience, being told to do physical exercise when you can't can itself affect mental health. You may not be able to do physical exercise for a variety of reasons, but please do not worry. Because if you cannot, it doesn't mean that you cannot get a complete self-care routine. Further, for those of you working part-time on a PhD, to those of you with caring responsibilities, finding the time to exercise can be a challenge. We should not be made to feel ashamed for not being able to find the time. For those that can... Physical exercise has been shown to improve physical health and reduce risk of major illnesses such as stroke, heart disease, type 2 diabetes and cancer. It also has huge benefits for our mental health. Research has shown that exercise can improve cognition function and academic performance. Fitting physical exercise in around a busy PhD schedule is possible by establish a routine. You're more likely to stick to your exercise plan if you establish a routine and stick with it. Even 10 minutes a day is better than no exercise, and research has found that high intensity, short burst exercise is just as effective as medium intensity exercise over a longer time period. Good to know if you're time strapped. Tip, it can take a few weeks to really get into a routine, so stick at it. Find a sport you enjoy. If like me, you were forced to do a whole host of sports you didn't enjoy at school, know that there is a sport out there for you. The university setting provides a unique opportunity to try different sports and activities through university clubs. This is also a great way to meet new friends. Realise it doesn't have to be expensive. There is a tendency to think that we need fancy gym memberships in order to exercise, when in reality, we can do cheaper alternatives of exercising using water bottles for weights and YouTube videos for fitness plan ideas if needed. Managing finances. Not often mentioned in self-care, managing finances can make a huge difference to well-being, and financial hardship is not uncommon for PhD students, with a recent 2020 SERU survey of US graduate students revealing that 19% of graduate students experience food insecurity. Further, approximately 1 in 5 PhD students have an additional job alongside their PhD, with 53% of them doing them to make ends meet. With the tips to help manage financial hardship that follow, I want to highlight that whilst these are a place to start, I do not wish to suggest that financial struggles are easy and straightforward to manage, and that if you just follow my advice, you'll be fine. I acknowledge financial strains can be huge barriers, Juggling several part-time jobs on top of PhD research is a huge feat and is likely going to impact other aspects of self-care, for example, simply not having the time or energy for some activities. Further, managing your finances, however well, is not going to make up for the chronic underfunding of PhD studentships and in some cases, lack of a living wage, and it certainly cannot make more money when there is none. If you are struggling with money it is also highly likely that you will be surrounded by colleagues that have never had to worry about their finances. This is one of the many reasons why comparing your PhD journey to others is not helpful. Know that completing your PhD in spite of having financial difficulties is a huge achievement. Note, if you're feeling disadvantaged by your financial situation, speaking to your PhD supervisor or course coordinator is a great place to start. Planning your finances can be hugely helpful. This might include creating an Excel spreadsheet of your spending for a month. By doing this, you may be able to identify areas where you're spending more than you are budgeting for and can adjust accordingly. If you find that even after planning, you're struggling financially, there are options available to you. Hardship funds. Most universities have a student hardship fund or similar available for students to apply for if they're in financial difficulty. More recently, professional bodies such as the Royal Society of Chemistry and their Chemist Community Fund are also providing financial support. Studying part-time PhD study does not have to be full-time and can be split over a longer period of time. This enables study around another job to be able to have financial security. This is also a popular option for PhD students with chronic illness. The possibility of doing part-time work is often dependent on grant stipulations and may not be possible to do on some visas. Getting a part-time job. It may be possible to get a part-time job, or several, around your PhD. Managing this can be incredibly tough. Possible ways to complement your PhD is considering jobs such as tutoring, proofreading or writing for relevant magazines. There may be extra teaching you can do at your university to make extra cash. Note, This may not be possible due to visa stipulations in some situations. Food banks. If you find you're struggling to make ends meet, and this is impacting your ability to afford food, country-dependent, there are often local food banks and soup kitchens that can give you a free meal. Faith-based organisations may be of assistance. It is important to inform your graduate school if you're struggling, to the extent of needing food banks for survival, As there may be more support or at least understanding of your situation available. Examples of self care. The range of self care options are huge, and I cannot summarize them all here, but for me, they divide into several categories physical, for example, exercising, taking medication, sleep, stretching, rest, meal preparation, hygiene. Emotional, for example, practicing mindfulness, therapy. Spiritual, For example, meditation, worship, reducing screen time. Creativity, for example, hobbies, reading, journaling. Financial, for example, paying bills, budgeting, meal planning. And social, for example, meeting friends, communication, spending time with family, establishing boundaries, spending time alone. Based on this information, another task for you to try is to think about your current self-care routine, or lack of. What could you build into your daily life? If you do not already, it may be beneficial to add your self-care activities to your calendar, log them in a diary, or use an app to log them. Putting self-care in context of a PhD. Now we've explored what self-care is, I want to explore how to establish a self-care routine around your PhD work. As a PhD student, you will be busy, and prioritizing your well-being may inadvertently be affected. It can seem counterproductive to take time out of doing your PhD work to look after your well-being, but only by doing so can you ensure that you are prepared and ready for what is a long-distance run, not a short sprint. So how might you do this? Acknowledge that there will always be more work to be done. The open-ended nature of PhD study can make us feel like we need to always be working to succeed, particularly in the first few years of a PhD, where we feel out of our depth because we know little about our field of study. It is important to realise there is always more work that could be done. It doesn't mean it should be done straight away. Building knowledge takes time. Prioritising self-care when things get tough. As tempting as it can be when we have a looming deadline to cease all self-care activities to deliver on what is required of us, we need to resist doing this. Taking half an hour out to look after yourself is not likely going to impede you. In fact, taking a moment can actually help you to be more efficient. Schedule in time for self-care. In your work diary, schedule in routine times that you might engage in some self-care activities. Maybe this would be ensuring you always take a lunch break and go for a walk three times a week during that lunch break. Tip, if you do not have full autonomy over your schedule, for example, your PhD supervisor is prone to scheduling last-minute meetings, consider taking your self-care time in lieu and move it to a different time in the day. Understand that it doesn't have to be time or money intensive. When we think of self-care, we can often think of time or money intensive activities, like going for a half-an-hour walk or booking on to a spa day. You can take shorter periods of time to reset your thoughts through mindfulness practices, for example, taking a minute to close your eyes and relax, which will still help support your well-being. Consider building self-care into meetings. Could meetings be 50 minutes long, not one hour, in order for attendees to have a break between meetings, for any meetings you have direct control over? Think about time-saving options. If time is tight, there are self-care tasks you can do to help yourself. For example, meal prepping for the week can be both time and cost-saving. Could you combine your exercise for the day in with your commute? If you're driving to work, could you park in a car park slightly further away to get more of a walk-in? Could you limit working out of hours, if you feel you have to, to only some evenings of the week, so you can ensure you also practice self-care? Realise what works for you as self-care might change during your PhD. Anecdotally, one of the issues I often see PhD students struggle with is reading for pleasure. Before starting a PhD, this might have been useful self-care, but given the intensity of a PhD programme and the sheer volume of reading required, often there is no energy or motivation left to do this. This means that other forms of self-care might need to be explored. Personally, it has taken me about four years post PhD to pick up a novel and actually read it. It was Leviathan Wakes by James S. A. Corey, if you're interested. For a long time, I was reading non fiction to better myself rather than for actual enjoyment. You will likely get it wrong. PhDs can be unpredictable, with periods of high intensity and low intensity. This means that your self care may have to adapt to the current situation you find yourself in. It is a learning process, so you will not get everything right all the time. Tip. Remember, you can hit the reset button on self-care at any time. You don't have to wait for the next week to start again. If you're really struggling to even comprehend having the energy to engage with self-care, this may be indicative of you struggling with your mental health. This is reason enough to consider speaking to a medical professional. Acknowledging there may be a problem, addiction. As discussed earlier in this chapter, self-care helps us improve our capacity to cope with whatever comes our way and is particularly useful throughout the PhD process. There are, however, other ways we might improve our capacity to cope that can ultimately be dangerous for our health. This includes taking drugs or drinking alcohol to excess. Although often associated with undergraduate students, Cranford et al., 2009 found that approximately 34% of graduate students had engaged in binge drinking behaviours in the last two weeks. At first, you may think that these substances may help you release stress, but long-term heavy use can have health consequences. They may also lead you to end up in situations where you're in danger or extremely vulnerable and can result in monetary trouble due to financing these habits. If you do notice you are struggling with addiction, there are resources and groups available to support you, including on-campus support, as well as groups such as Alcoholics Anonymous. Setting boundaries. One of the biggest forms of self-care is setting boundaries for ourselves. We have a finite amount of energy and exceeding beyond this can lead to increased strain, add stress and result in us neglecting our self-care. Setting boundaries can be one of the most difficult things we can do, but is perhaps the most important. This is reflected in the number of fantastic books on setting boundaries out there that are well worth checking out if you struggle to put yourself first. Setting boundaries is important in the working environment just as much as in our personal relationships as poor boundaries can lead to feelings of resentment, anger towards others as well as internalised and ultimately burnout. Before we explore setting boundaries, it is therefore important to understand that you can be your own saboteur Enthusiasm can be our best friend, but it can also lead to overcommitment. By not planning your time, you may find yourself overburdened. It might not be good for your career. We can justify taking on more and more extracurricular activities because it will help advance our career. However, if you're overstretched, it may mean that you let the ball drop and do not deliver quality work. Ultimately, that one more thing you get involved in is unlikely to benefit you as much as you think it might, so concentrating on a few manageable tasks may be more useful. People may not have your best interests at heart. When people ask you to do additional labour that pushes you to the brink in order to deliver, they often have a vested interest in doing so and may not even have considered your well-being. This may not be done with malice, but they may need a reminder. Tip Remember that one person's lack of organisation is not your urgency. Choosing to set a boundary might not be black or white. In some situations, setting a boundary may help you slightly, for example, protect your time, but it may also help someone else out. For example, helping a friend with an outreach programme. In these situations, we may choose to bend those boundaries to support those around us, or choose to be more honest with our friend to ensure they understand why helping would stretch us too thin. Boundary setting is not lack of kindness. Sometimes we must prioritise ourselves. Individuals looking to make you feel guilty for setting boundaries may not be as supportive as you originally thought. Boundary setting is often the biggest act of kindness we can show ourselves. Setting boundaries to protect your health are non-negotiable. There is a culture of presenteeism in academia, which in reality leads to people feeling that they cannot take time off when sick. However, when you're ill, you're likely to make your illness last longer if not getting sufficient rest. Saying you are ill and that you will not be working is a more than acceptable and essential boundary. So practically during your PhD programme, how do you set boundaries during your PhD? To reiterate the name of this chapter, Without you, there is no PhD. To have time to look after your mental health, you must set boundaries. Yet, given the hyper-competitive nature of academia and the culture of overwork, it can feel difficult to take a step back and set boundaries for fear of missing out. Knowing where your boundary limits are is trial and error, and something we learn over time. Know it is okay not to reply immediately. We can feel compelled to respond to requests immediately, particularly to our PhD supervisors, due to the power dynamic that exists. More on this in Chapter 9. In fact, it's been found that as receivers of emails, we often overestimate how quickly the sender expects us to respond to non-urgent emails and that this stress can impact wellbeing. In short, we often don't actually need to respond as quickly as we think we do. If you receive correspondence outside of work hours, you're entitled to delay responding to the following day. Tip. Do not be afraid to use the phrase, let me check my schedule and get back to you, if you are placed on the spot during a conversation. Consider deleting your work emails off your phone. Having clear physical boundaries between your home life and work life, like not having your university emails on your personal phone, can help create separation. Tip. Remember that most of the time, the work will wait until tomorrow. Do not feel you have to justify. When setting boundaries, we can often feel the need to give a reason. You do not have to. For example, wanting to have work-life balance and not work your evenings because you have children and want to spend time with them is just as valid as not having children and wanting to relax in your evenings. You do not have to justify your personal life. Set your own deadlines. If someone is asking you to produce work quickly, but you know that the work is going to take longer, be honest and provide feedback. Give them a realistic turnaround based on your schedule. Say no more. Say no to opportunities straight away if you want to, but allow yourself some thinking time before you say yes to something. By waiting a short while, you will not miss the opportunity, but you may realize you do not have the capacity to take another project on. Think about future you. When saying yes to new opportunities, we can do so with enthusiasm, but we must consider our time and energy as resources. While you have the energy now, do you have the energy to commit to something three months in the future? Be kind to yourself. Setting boundaries takes a lot of practice, and even if you have been effectively setting boundaries for a while, it is still more than likely that you will get your boundaries setting wrong from time to time. Saying no can be hard, so here are some examples of what you could say to help you set boundaries and prioritise opportunities. Thank you for the opportunity. Unfortunately, I'm at capacity right now and cannot commit to taking on another project. Honest and to the point. Please can you confirm if this is a paid opportunity? Seeing if an offer is a paid opportunity can help you prioritise. I could take this work on, but given that I'm running at capacity right now, I suspect the work I would deliver would not be to the standard that you and this project deserves. Being honest can help reiterate your point, and not many people are then going to force you to take on a project you have said you will likely under-deliver on. Please ask me again in a week. My schedule should hopefully have cleared up by then. I would not be able to do this for another insert time period, both setting clear, realistic time boundaries. A final note on setting boundaries and self-care is that circumstances can result in us not having the flexibility or privilege to say no to working weekends or outside of shift patterns. For example, self-funding a PhD may mean that you are committed to finishing your PhD as quickly as possible. Further, if you need additional teaching work or to bring in research grants to make ends meet and pay bills, slowing down may seem impossible. In these situations, prioritising what is best for you, for example focusing on paid work, is even more essential. It is important to remember that prioritising yourself is not selfish, it is self-preservation. What to do if you reach burnout? As discussed at the start of this chapter, burnout is best avoided, but unfortunately we may not always manage this. If you have hit burnout, this is not a fault with you. Learning to balance workload, set boundaries and saying no takes time and experience. Some of the signs of burnout include disconnect from work, loss of motivation, physical and or emotional exhaustion, difficulty concentrating, dropping creativity, withdrawal from socialising, feelings of hopelessness, feeling overwhelmed by workload, work quality decline, feelings of anxiety, depression... Recognising these in ourselves is often easier said than done. We can think that we are simply not good enough and that is why we are struggling, when in reality, no person could be functioning well with the level of stress and workload we are under. One of the biggest barriers to realising we are experiencing burnout is thinking that a PhD is meant to be hard so that what you are experiencing is normal. However, there is a difference between your PhD being challenging and you'll be actually damaging your physical and mental health. If you're struggling, please reach out to those around you for help. Some tips on how to do this include Share the load Understand that it is okay to ask for help. Work colleagues may be able to step in and support you with the work you are doing. Sometimes we can be too proud to ask for help to our detriment. Tip We can get trapped into thinking that our colleagues will be unhappy with us if we ask for help. Asking for help can give others a confidence boost and our worries are often unfounded. Speak with your PhD supervisor. Being honest with your PhD supervisor may result in a reduced workload for a while to help you recover. They are also in a unique position to help you prioritise. Ask for extensions. If you are overwhelmed with the amount of work you must do, ask for extensions. Many extensions are not set in stone. To do this, honesty is needed, saying that you need more time. Consider taking a break. Stepping away from your research can bring you back refreshed and ready to tackle your research. Taking time away can also lead to increased creativity. Change something up. Not all of us can take vacation time away from our studies for several reasons. In this instance, changing your day-to-day tasks for a short while may help. For example, if you've been working on writing a manuscript and are finding the writing tough, consider working on the figures for the paper instead. Temporary Withdrawal Most PhD programmes offer the ability to temporarily withdraw medical withdrawal from a PhD programme to concentrate on getting better. Note, this is usually unpaid. Dependent on the country you work in, you may be entitled to several weeks of sick leave. PhD Student 3 states... I withdrew from my PhD for six months on medical leave. It gave me the time to get better and readjust my perspective when it came to my PhD work. When I returned, I had the energy and mental clarity to succeed. Managing burnout can also be made much more difficult if you do not have the support of your PhD supervisor. This might mean that they continue to give you a huge workload irrespective of how you're feeling, which can lead to increased stress. In these situations, Seeking out support from your PhD programme manager or another academic you trust in your department may be prudent. Remember, without you, there is no PhD, no research output and no subsequent changing the world. Put yourself first. Navigating self-care as a part-time PhD student. Managing being a part-time student comes with unique challenges, particularly when you may be working another job around your PhD study, managing chronic illnesses, and or caring responsibilities. In this instance, small self-care activities may be the most beneficial, like scheduling in coffee breaks for downtime, as well as giving yourself an evening or afternoon off per week, whatever works best for you, to decompress. With PhD study as a part-time student often spread over many years, taking a break may also not seem like a possibility through fears of not completing your programme. But it is important to remember that burnout may mean you're not doing your best work and that taking some time to rest is okay. Advocating for better. How can universities help students prioritise self-care? Self-care is often considered the personal responsibility of students to implement, but there are several ways, in my opinion, that institutions can support self-care routines. 1. Provide dedicated time for self-care. Finding the time to actually do self-care can be tough for PhD students, so making sure that there is time set aside for them to prioritise their self-care is important. This must be reinforced to PhD supervisors so that they make sure their students take the time that they need. 2. Challenge the culture of overwork and presenteeism. Strive to have staff model healthy behaviours and consider making out of hours working the exception, not the rule. Strive to have staff model healthy behaviours and consider making out of hours working the exception, not the rule. Taking time off with illness rather than coming into the department should be the standard. 3. Ensure a living wage and hardship funding. Financial difficulties can hugely impact mental health. Help can be provided by making sure that PhD students are provided a living wage, monitoring funding as a function of inflation, etc., and that internships are not paid-in experience. Experience doesn't pay bills. Further, financial reimbursement must be quick when students have to pay upfront for study-related costs, such as conference travel. Better still is not having students foot these costs in the first place. Hardship funding should also be made available for students that need it. 4. Provide affordable access to healthcare. Strains from poor access to healthcare can impact mental health, Universities should be providing free therapy, counselling services, as well as access to medical advice. In addition to being financially accessible, these resources should be available in a timely manner. Understanding that ensuring that students have access to support, both physically and financially, is imperative.